strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Come in, uh, have a seat. Um, as uh, always, I'd like to introduce the gentleman standing to my right, my valet, Wilkinson. Uh, he assists with our little show by pulling reference materials from the shelves and reading for us any passages that need quoting. Pleased to meet you. As uh, regular listeners know, we begin these shows now with a uh, mailbag segment in which I answer listener questions. Uh, Wilkinson, do you want to uh, tell them more about it? Certainly. Listeners can submit their questions on topics of folklore or topics related to our show via the website, boneandsickle.com. It's all there. And the rules? Yes, there are some guidelines for helping you to formulate a better question, more likely to make it into the mailbag. Just be sure to read those first. Okay, then. Mailbag. Okay, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm reaching in. Uh, here we go, uh, this one. Uh, Wilkinson, uh, you're the reader? Certainly. <clears throat> Dear Mr. Reidenauer, in the Lilith episode, you mentioned Lilith appearing as the Queen of Sheba, but didn't really explain that. All I know about Sheba is the cat food, so I was hoping you could explain a bit more about this character. Signed, Drew Hawkland. Cat food? What the hell does that mean? Uh, it's a brand of cat food, Sheba. Oh, well, good I had a cat food expert available, I suppose. Hardly. I just happened... Uh, happened to? Never mind. Oh, sorry, sir. You can get on with your answer about Sheba or the Queen of Sheba. Well, okay. The uh, the, the the Queen of Sheba uh, was uh, an African queen in the Hebrew Bible uh, who visits uh, King Solomon, bearing gifts and uh, bringing a riddle to uh, test him. Uh, beyond that, there's the uh, the more interesting legends uh, claiming that she had a child with Solomon. Uh, that she left him a pillar inscribed with all the wisdom of the ages. And, uh... Sir? What were you going to say earlier? I didn't mean... About cat food. I didn't mean to bring it up because I know you don't like to talk <sighs> about it. The cat. The mummified cat. When I purchased the food for it, I happened to have purchased that brand. You know, I left out a little food. You said I could do that? You said it was okay? I don't care what brand you bought. I mean that it was okay to leave it some food. Just as a gesture. Just in case. You never know. Things had gotten so desperate and strange with that noise in the walls. 
The Owling? Well, now I suppose we're obliged to explain the whole sordid affair. We can just drop it. Once upon a time, a few months ago, I happened to have been loaned the mummy of a cat by my friend Paul Kudinaris. He became rather conflicted over the loan, eventually insisting on having it back. So I returned the thing, but... It was as if it didn't want to leave. There were noises, uh, other things... Neither of us wanted to believe it. It was mainly you. Anyone could hear the noises. You could even hear them recorded in old episodes, several of them. It seemed it would never end. But it did, and we had agreed to never speak of it again. I'm sorry. It was mainly you. It fed on your fear. I do apologize for bringing it up. That's fine. It was just a cat. Wasn't even alive. Didn't touch the food. Probably hated the brand you chose. Sheba. Anyway, let's get on with this show. Episode 28. Gog, Magog, and the Bones of Giants. So I'm your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, explores the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this uh, particular area of uh, intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle is made possible exclusively through the uh, generosity of our Patreon donors. We happen to have a special 441 deal for new donors through the month of June. For certain levels, you get three extra soundscape recordings or three extra recordings of horror stories and folklore texts or three extra PDFs of antique books of the type we use to prepare the show or all of the above. Um, there are details on the website for that, and I'll have more on uh, Patreon at the end of the episode. Explosive shells burst in the street. Victory in all guns. Victory in spite of all terror. Sculptor David Evans puts the finishing touches to two old friends of Londoners, Gog and Magog. Twelve years ago, effigies of the two giants were destroyed when the city's guild hall was blitzed. But now, exact replicas copied from models are all set to go back to town to take their place. Although no one's sure why they should live in Guildhall at all, it's certainly like old times to have Gog and Magog in London again. So who were these characters so happily welcomed back to London after their predecessors were bombed to splinters by the Nazis? My listeners in the UK may know something about this, particularly those in London, who would expect to meet uh, Gog and Magog on the streets every November as part of the Lord Mayor's show. That is uh, the annual parade honoring the uh, ceremonial mayor of London. Uh, for American listeners familiar with the Bible, however, these names are bound to carry very 
different associations. Now, what I want to preach about tonight is the subject of Gog and Magog, which is brought up in this passage. And he says plainly that Gog and Magog has a reference to Russia. It's difficult Gog and Magog attacking Israel Through some historical conflation of an individual Gog from the land of Magog in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, there uh, later arose uh, dual figures of Gog and Magog who serve in the book of Revelation as uh, figureheads of kingdoms that will menace God's people in the end times. And they come to this Middle East Bible prophecy conference and it's all about Gog and Magog and this battle of uh, Assigning real world uh, lands to these figures has fueled theological speculation for centuries. It continues to that the battle of Gog and Magog will take place. I mean, why did he even bring up Gog and Magog? He said the devil's going to deceive... As you may suspect, the British do not see themselves as allies of the Antichrist. Uh, these uh, parade figures, which reside at the London Guildhall when not parading, were first mentioned as part of the festivities accompanying the coronation of Elizabeth I in 1558. They uh, serve protective, if not quite Christian, roles in the country's mythology. By the way, as of 2006, it's not been the uh, carved wooden figures carried in the parade, but wickerwork giants bearing these names. It is time to keep your appointment no, with the wicker. No, no, nothing to do with human sacrifice in this episode, but I do promise some dark pagan elements as we dig into the story including the role incubi are said to have played in creating the kingdom of Britain. But to get there, we need to go back a bit, uh, all the way, in fact, to the biblical book of Genesis. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Our story of giants begins with these verses from the sixth chapter of Genesis, shortly before the uh, story of Noah's flood. Uh, to make sense of this, you need to understand that the uh, English phrase, sons of God, interprets a Hebrew phrase used for the angels, which in this case have mated with human females, that is the uh, daughters of men. And this union produces what's uh, here in the uh, King James Version, translated as giants, a word chosen for the Hebrew Nephilim, which I'll get into more in a minute. But uh, first, uh, these angels. While traditional Christianity and Judaism later would teach that the fall of the angels led by Lucifer occurred before the creation, this passage, uh, suggesting perhaps a later fall, uh, makes more sense in light of apocryphal texts rejected by the church uh, only in the third century. Uh, namely, we're talking about the book of Enoch, which refers to uh, these earthbound angels as watchers. In this book, some of these watchers uh, prove benevolent, but others not only forced themselves on human women, but generally fostered uh, mankind's most wicked impulses, leading God to send the flood. There's an odd representation of the Watchers as strictly 
benevolent beings in Darren Aronofsky's uh, 2014 film Noah. Still we taught mankind all we knew of creation. With our help, they rose from the dust, became great and mighty. The film's a curiously sci-fi-flavored rendering of the myth, showing us uh, CG watchers rendered actually as uh, sort of gangly transformers encrusted in stone, but with hearts of gold. None of that uh, raping of human female stuff in the film. Now, this word Nephilim. While the uh, context of Genesis does make clear that these are mighty beings, the word itself literally just means fallen ones. Uh, fallen here uh, wouldn't mean driven out of heaven, uh, of course, that's their fathers. Um, likely it refers to their angelic nature being tainted by human hybridization, so more like uh, half-breed angels. The early Greek translators chose a word meaning giant based upon other contexts. Other stories uh, mentioning Nephilim as strange men that once occupied lands taken by the Hebrews, namely uh, various tribes associated with the land of Canaan. In the book of Numbers, Moses sends spies to report on the inhabitants of uh, the land to be invaded. Upon returning, the spies attempt to dissuade Moses, describing men of mighty stature that uh, dwarf the spies. Uh, they say, There we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. These are the Anakim from Anak. Uh, similar references are made of other peoples, which may in some cases uh, overlap or even be the same, it's unclear. Uh, the Rephaim, uh, Zamzumin, and Amon. Later in the book of Joshua, we hear that the giant Anakim have been driven from Canaan and have taken up refuge among the Philistines, including the city of Gath, from which the giant uh, Goliath was said to hail. Uh, one other Old Testament tribe noted for its immense stature was the Amorites, uh, whose king Og we hear of in the book of Deuteronomy. The book, written long after Og's death, mentions an object, probably an iron bed, but possibly a sarcophagus, depending on your translation, uh, belonging to the late King Og. A curiosity still exhibited in the writer's day, thanks to its impressive size. Nine cubits in length and four cubits in width. That is a little over 13 feet long and six wide. And then later in the book of Amos, uh, Og is again mentioned, uh, noting that his height was like the height of the cedars and strength like that of the oaks. A number of Jewish uh, midrashim describe Og as having survived from the days before Noah, uh, riding out the flood, either holding on to the ark or allowed to board the craft as Noah's slave. Another has him fleeing to dry ground in the Holy Land, the only site not subject to the flood or simply being taller than the floodwaters, which only reached his ankles. Another has uh, Noah attempting to battle Og, somehow uh, vaulting 10 cubits, or 20 feet, into the air to strike at him, but only wounding him on the ankle. Though the Bible's mention of giants is restricted to the cases I've cited, there is a tendency for uh, heroes of the past, whether biblical or classical, to loom large in the imagination, uh, and for historical stature to be equated with physical size, 
And for um, cases of extraordinary stature remarked upon in historical narratives to be generalized to whole populations. And it's for these reasons that uh, a belief that modern men descended from gigantic forefathers was widespread into recent centuries, even articulated in early scientific works, as in uh, this transcript of a 1718 presentation at the French Royal Academy. In this table, Mr. Henrion assigns to Adam the height of 123 feet and 9 inches. According to him, Noah was 20 feet shorter than Adam. Abraham was but 27 or 28 at most. Moses was no more than 13. Hercules was but 10. Alexander the Great, hardly 6. And Julius Caesar, but 5. Another factor contributing to this belief in giants from the past would be the discovery of uh, bones of prehistoric animals, particularly mastodons, a species unknown at the time, and therefore interpreted as those of gigantic humans or the half-human Nephilim. Because these uh, discoveries provided uh, dramatic visual support of the uh, Genesis narrative, they were often displayed as uh, biblical relics in churches. For decades, a gigantic bone believed to belong to one of the Nephilim was displayed at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna, hung over the main entrance, uh, dubbed the uh, Riesentor, or Giant's Door. Discovered in uh, 1443 while excavating the foundation, the bone was later determined to be the thigh bone of a mastodon. Another prehistoric elephant bone, presumed to uh, represent the Nephilim, was uh, discovered in Lucerne, Switzerland, in 1577, in the roots of a tree uprooted by a storm. When it was brought to the town hall for inspection by city worthies, an uh, anatomy professor from Basel, extrapolating from the single bone, drew an illustration of a 19-foot giant from which he presumed it had come. This figure was incorporated into the uh, municipal seal of Lucerne that's uh, still in use today. In Scandinavia, it was the uh, fossilized bones of whales that turned up as uh, Nephilim bones in churches. While these were dug from the inland earth in fossilized form, residents on the coasts were not so gullible when it came to whale bones. And a uh, 1489 account mentions a stranded whale on an upland uh, beach being butchered for food and its scavenged bones, then being sold to several churches as Nephilim relics. Whale bones also turn up in a number of Welsh churches, including uh, one hung over a doorway to Britain's uh, oldest Romanesque shrine, the Church of St. Melangus in the village of Pennant. Defying any uh, secular logic, this uh, four-foot rib bone was said to belong to St. Melangus, a demure uh, 7th century virgin saint, not otherwise known for her stature, but as the patron saint of hares. Giant teeth have also been regarded as evidence of biblical truths, going back to St. Augustine's 5th century remarks on the subject in uh, the 15th book of his City of God. I myself, along with some others, saw on the shore at Utica a man's molar tooth of such size that if it were cut down into teeth such as we have, a hundred, I fancy, could have been made out of it. I believe it belonged to some giant, for though the bodies of ordinary men 
were then larger than ours, the giant surpassed all in stature. St. Christopher, known as the uh, patron of travelers and for carrying the infant Christ across a river, was described in legends as a Canaanite and therefore often assumed to be a giant. Therefore, medieval specimens of large teeth from animals, uh, prehistoric or otherwise, were presented as relics in a number of churches. In uh, Valence, France, the Church of St. Christopher exhibited a molar said to be bigger than a man's fist. The same region coincidentally also produced two other sets of giant's bones uncovered on the banks of the Rhone River uh, in uh, 1456 and 1565. Also discovered on a riverbank uh, in uh, Charnham near Canterbury was a trove of bones and teeth described by Edward J. Wood in his 1868 book, Giants and Dwarves, as a quantity of strange and monstrous bones, some being whole and others broken, with four teeth, sound and entire, but partially petrified, each tooth weighing about half a pound, and some of them almost as large as a man's fist. A St. Christopher tooth displayed in the Church of St. Christopher in the town of Vicelli, Italy, is mentioned in a lecture delivered by the uh, disgruntled former monk Alessandro Gavazzi in New York in 1853. These monks found a very large molar tooth, a very gigantic tooth, and this was enclosed in a shrine of gold and silver. For many centuries, the Piedmontese and from other parts of Italy came to worship the tooth of St. Christopher as a mediator with them and God. About 60 years ago, there was an accurate examination made of this tooth, and it was proved to be the tooth of a hippopotamus. Giovanni Boccaccio, who wrote extensively about giants in his uh, 1360 book, The Genealogy of the Gods and the Gentiles, mentions the discovery of a giant in a Sicilian cave measuring 300 feet, remarking that a tooth from this creature weighing over 12 pounds could in those days be seen hanging from a wire in the Church of the Annunciation in Trapani. Even Robert Plott, an Oxford University professor who published the first illustrated collection of fossils in 1677, mistook the femur of a megalosaurus as that of a biblical giant when it was presented to him for study. Carefully uh, comparing the specimen to uh, bones of known living animals and noting that it must have come from something larger than an ox or a horse, uh, he briefly considered the possibility of an elephant brought to England by the Romans, but eventually decided it belonged to an antediluvian human giant, as uh, prehistoric animals were yet unknown. Plot included a drawing of it in his uh, Natural History of Oxfordshire, one reproduced in 1763 in a drawing by Richard Brooks, who named the creature after the bone's appearance, uh, christening it Scrotum Humanum, that is, human scrotum. While this is the first name ever assigned to a dinosaur, unfortunately it was the uh, more uh, wholesome name Megalosaurus that uh, stuck. In the 1700s, a fossilized skeleton found in a quarry near Lake Constance was examined by the uh, Swiss naturalist uh, Jakob Scheuchseri, and uh, thanks to its resemblance to a crushed child, was determined to be a juvenile giant killed in Noah's flood. 
In his book Lithographia Helvetica, he dubbed it Homo Deluvi Testis, meaning uh, witness of the deluge. Seven years later, the famous naturalist Georges Cuvier suggested it was instead a prehistoric giant salamander. And in 1831, this uh, species of giant salamander was named in Schweitzeri's honor. Salamandra Schweitzeri. Interestingly, a 1936 science fiction novel by Carl uh, Chapek, the same Czech writer who gave us our word robots, made a uh, fictional descendant of Jakob Schweitzeri into the nemesis of humanity in his darkly satiric dystopian novel, War of the Newts, uh, one available as an interesting 2005 BBC production, which I'll uh, link on the site for those interested. We were talking about British lore, after all, and what could be more British than King Arthur? According to the medieval writer Gerald of Wales, in 1191, the grave of the famed king and his wife Guinevere was discovered near Glastonbury Abbey by monks residing nearby. A report was sent to Henry II describing the monks' discovery of a lead cross with inscription identifying the occupants of the grave as Arthur and Guinevere, and uh, Henry okayed the excavation of the grave. Gerald uh, claims to have been present at the exhumation and remarks on the enormous size of the skeleton. Describing the skull in his uh, 1193 volume, Book of Instruction for a Ruler, Gerald writes, The skull, meanwhile, was spacious and so large that it seemed to be of a freak or prodigy with a hand's breadth for the eye socket alone and there were ten or more wounds there, all of which had scarred over, except for one greater wound, which had left a substantial hole. The uh, clumsy Latin Gerald records as having been engraved in the cross, however, has left little doubt that the discovery was a little more than a hoax. Another contemporaneous account mentions uh, suspicious curtains hung by the monks around the grave during excavation, and uh, other historians have remarked upon the fact that the... Uh, Possession of Arthur's bones, particularly giant bones, uh, would have been a surefire way to bring more pilgrims and donations uh, to uh, reconstruct the abbey, which had been uh, leveled by fire seven years earlier. These bones, whatever they were, uh, were later moved to an indoor crypt, but forever lost during the dissolution of the monasteries. So, uh, sadly, we will never see a King Arthur reconstructed with uh, mastodon tusks. Just as uh, myths of giants can be mixed into history by uh, Gerald of Wales, uh, other historical narratives shade into folk tales, such as uh, that of Jack the Giant Killer. Don't worry, I'll go over the basics of this tale, since uh, beyond this uh, feed and fight and following the story's much less familiar than it used to be. So for that, we uh, go back to the 1700s. There are references to uh, chapbook versions from a few decades earlier, but the first I find is from 1790, called... The Pleasant and Delightful History of Jack and the Giants. 
The story itself is set in the days of Arthur, with whom Jack uh, interacts. Jack is a Cornish uh, farmer's son who, at the story's beginning, slays a giant who has been uh, eating the livestock of nearby farms. Jack digs a pit into which the giant falls and then kills him by bashing his head with a pickaxe. The giant he kills is Kermaran, a name possibly related to an earlier folkloric figure I'll discuss shortly. Eager for vengeance on behalf of their fellow giant, uh, a man-eating giant named Blunderbore and his brother Rebex uh, capture Jack in an, an enchanted castle where he uh, also slays them by throwing nooses around their necks and hanging them until they were black in the face. Jack frees three ladies held in the dungeon for refusing to eat their husbands cooked up by the giant and then goes on to Wales where he tricks a two-headed giant into slashing open his own belly. King Arthur's son then enters the story as Jack's servant for the next encounter during which they rob a three-headed giant receiving a magic sword a cap of knowledge, cloak of invisibility, and shoes of swiftness. The next episode, left out of uh, later retellings, involves an encounter with a lady serving Lucifer. Jack breaks her bonds to the Dark One and beheads Lucifer himself, for which he is rewarded with membership in the Round Table. Next, there follows an episode in which Jack cuts off the giant's legs, then beheads him, and cuts off the nose of another giant before beheading him. All these heads, by the way, are uh, sent back to King Arthur. Then, there follows a banquet scene interrupted by the giant Thunderdell, uh, the one who uh, does chant. Fee! Foe! Foe! And through Jack's trickery, Thunderdell drowns in the castle moat. The final adventure takes place in the enchanted castle of the uh, giant uh, Galagantua, who is also beheaded. A duke's daughter, who has been transformed into a white doe by the castle's sorcerer, is returned to her original form, and uh, more captives are freed. So, uh, as I mentioned, Jack's uh, first victim in this tale, Kamaran, may be related uh, by name to an older Cornish giant, Corinius. In local lore, Corinius and his wife were said to have built St. Michael's Mount, a uh, conical rocky eminence off the Cornish coasts set on a flat tideland, sometimes uh, covered by water. Believed to be a site associated with pre-Christian worship, the island likely hosted a now-vanished uh, monastery in the 8th century. What's particularly odd is that across the English Channel in Normandy stands a better-known, larger, but similarly named, similarly shaped, tidal island, Mont-Saint-Michel, which is also the site of an 8th century monastery. The Cornish counterpart happened to be given to the same Benedictine order residing in the island in Normandy. The two are so similar they have often been confused, as in a 2019 case where a Cornish tourist magazine accidentally ran a photo of the French site with an article on the uh, local attraction. Like the Cornish site, the French site was said to have been inhabited by a giant, killed in this case by King Arthur. Many scholars therefore believe that the Cornish Jack story is just an updated local retelling of Arthur's adventure. There are many 
tellings of this Arthurian tale, but a nicely grisly one, is from what's called the alliterative Mort Atur from about 1400. This uh, lovely description of the giant contains plenty of that alliteration after which scholars named the uh, text. He grinned like a greyhound with grisly teeth. He gaped and groaned aloud with grievous gestures for wrath with the good king, who spake to him in anger. His hair and his forelock were matted together and hung before his face for about half a foot. His brow and forehead were all like the skin of a frog and seemed freckled, hook-nosed like a hawk and a fierce bird, and hairy round his hollow eyes with overhanging brows rough as a dogfish, hardly could he be seen. So was he hidden in that mass of hair. Ears he had, full, huge, and ugly to see, with horrible eyes and burning withal, flat mouth like a flounder with grinning lips, and with the flesh in his front teeth as foul as a bear. And here's another great description of the uh, pantsless giant munching on human remains by the fire. He lay at full length, reposing foully. The thigh of a man's limb he lifted up by the haunch. His back and the lower parts and his broad loins he baked at the dreadful fire, and he was breechless. There were roasting full rudely dreadful meats of men and cattle bound together, a large pot crammed with anointed children, some spitted like birds. The battle is likewise gruesome, with details such as... But yet, the king nimbly and swiftly strives. He smites with a sword so that it gashes the giant's loins, and the blood gushes out so that it makes all the ground slimy on which he stands. The battle ends with the giant breaking three of Arthur's ribs, the two tumbling off a cliff, and Arthur finishing the giant off with a dagger. Now, I did mention these giant-killing tales shading into historical narratives, and this has to do with the giant Corinius after which Jack's first victim, Kamaran, seems to be modeled. Uh, he figures into the very first history books written about Britain. The one we'll be discussing was written about 1136 by Geoffrey of Monmouth and is called Regent Britannia, or the History of the Kings of Britain. It's uh, no history in a modern sense, but more of an aspirational fable about the nation's founding by the hero Brutus, after whom Britain is named, Brutus of Troy, grandson of Aeneas. After a period of wandering in Italy, he and his men land on a deserted island where they sleep in a temple to Diana. The goddess appears to Brutus in a dream with some directions. Brutus, there lies beyond the Gallic bounds an island which the western sea surrounds by giants once possessed. Now few remain to bar thy entrance or obstruct thy reign. The island to which they sail is then called Albion, and while very promising, still does have a giant problem. Brutus and his men are attacked by 21 giants, but manage to kill all but one, a particularly horrible giant described in the history as... In stature 12 cubits, and of such prodigious strength that at one shake he pulled up an oak, 
as if it had been a hazel wand. He is captured by Brutus and his men, and, as a sort of sport, is to be pitted against a particularly mighty member of Brutus's troop, one who enjoys wrestling giants, and that man's name is Corinius. The match proceeds. The giant, gaining the upper hand, breaks three of Corinius's ribs, just as uh, three of Arthur's ribs were broken. Another connection. Uh, we'll continue with the original text. At which Corinius, highly enraged, roused up his whole strength, and snatching him upon his shoulders, ran with him as fast as his weight would allow him to the next shore. And there, getting upon the top of a high rock, he hurled down the savage monster into the sea, where, falling on the sides of craggy rocks, he was torn to pieces and colored the waves with his blood. Brutus rewards Corinius by making him ruler of Cornwall, which is named for him. The other men go on to found London, which is not yet London, but called New Troy. The site and the border between Cornwall and Devon, where the giant was said to have been killed, became known as Giant's Leap, and in the 1400s was marked by an immense design cut in the turf to reveal the uh, white chalky substratum, uh, two immense figures, one larger with a club and the other representing Corinius. Now, the name of the giant figure on the hill and the giant thrown from the cliff in our story is Gogmagog, one word, and the hills upon which the figures were cut came to be known as Gog Magog Hills, two words. With time, we might imagine that the one figure was understood as Gog, and the other Magog. So we've almost come full circle to answer our question about those uh, Gog and Magog figures that appear in parades and at the London Guildhall. But one more wrinkle to mention. Those are the popular names used for these figures. In fact, their proper names are Gog, Magog, and Corinius. But by 1741, uh, Corinius himself was referred to as a giant in the publication The Gigantic History of the Two Famous Giants of Guildhall. Popular confusion regarding the story of the giant sleep in Cornwall, those two figures of the Gog Magog Hills, and a conflation with uh, misremembered biblical figures of Gog and Magog resulted in an addendum to the tale of Brutus of Troy, in which he captures two giants by the names Gog and Magog and forces them to serve as porters in his London palace, which later becomes the Guildhall. It's certainly like old times to have Gog and Magog in London again. Gog and Magog, Gog and Magog, Gog and Magog. Why did he even bring up Gog and Magog? So there you have it, but... I did promise one more tidbit about Incubi, and this has to do with the older name for England I mentioned earlier, Albion. Uh, one explanation of this name is that it comes from Albina, who, with her 30 sisters, were Britain's first human occupants, ruling before the arrival of Brutus. Uh, this story is first mentioned in a 14th century Anglo-Norman poem and begins in Greece, where Albina and her 30 sisters, all of them, are to be married off to royalty by their father, the king. 
However, they are too haughty to accept this arrangement and contrive to poison the grooms. When the plot is exposed, the women are set adrift in a rudderless boat as punishment, and it alights in England, or Albion, of course. But uh, where do we get these giants that Brutus and his men battled in this story? Well, uh, since there were no humans on the island, Albina and her sisters mated with spirits with incubi. And it was these unions between human women and infernal spirits that bred the giants of England. Just as in our Old Testament story of the Watchers and Nephilim. You were an angel, but angels can fall. You made a mistake, but now you've done it. We all I'm sorry. I told you. Now we have this. We're living this all again. How? Well, don't, don't, don't get back here. What are you doing? It's over here. No. It, it, it seems stronger over here. No. Come on. No, no, no. No, we can't. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to make this brief. Sorry. Um, we do want to remind you all to leave reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts and uh, check the website, boneandsickle.com, uh, where you'll find our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook group, all linked and, and Patreon. I mentioned some of the rewards earlier. There's also a uh, <clears throat> signed photo of Wilkinson, my Krampus book, uh, the Deluxe Mystery Kit. And if you sign up in June, as mentioned, you can get three extra soundscapes. That's the music and sound you hear under my voice. <laughs> and or three extra recordings of uh, old uh, folklore or horror texts or digital versions of um, the of old of the books and folklore horror books and donations start at one dollar a month and and uh special thanks to our new patrons uh yasmina kokurek uh i hope i got that right i got it wrong rachel uh antonucci and uh grace Uh, the show is written and produced by me al reitenauer wilkinson is played by rick gallagher thanks so much for listening